Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. If you're a, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, you probably heard me tell the story before about my math journey. It was not a good journey. Um, I remember very distinctly as an elementary school student sitting in a dark uh, bedroom at a desk with a small desk light lighting up my math homework and literally being in tears uh, until my father would break out a very old uh, digit-based calculator that I could use to solve the problems. Um, It was horrible, and that stuck with me all through high school and, in fact, three attempts at passing college algebra at Emporia State University. And then if you've heard this story, you know that my life changed quite dramatically in my master's program when I took a statistics course and all of a sudden saw a relevance for math that I had never found before. And a couple other things happened. I learned that computers could do the hard work of the computation, and I also learned that you could start to visualize things um, through computers in ways that you maybe wouldn't be able to do if you were working through a workbook and a math problem that your teacher gave you. So with that context in mind, I'm excited to talk today with Nigel Nisbet. He's the Vice President for Content Creations at the Mind Research Institute in Irvine, California. Um, he's going to be talking to us today about the the approach that is used by the Mind Research team in terms of helping students learn math the way that they naturally learn. So, Nigel, I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks for giving me your time today. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Scott. Delighted. Um, yeah. So I so I want to kind of start with, um, I always kind of like to go problem solution on some of these discussions. And, you know, I've thought a lot about the way I learned math, but, but I want to hear from you, given that you also have experience as a math teacher in the LA public school system. You know, what's it like when you are prepping a math lesson right now? And if you're following the quote unquote rules of how it's supposed to be taught, you know, why is that not resonating with generations of students in ways that lets them become more proficient in that subject? Okay, so that <laughs> that's a question with a lot of big answers. But there's, there's a couple of really, I think, kind of simple and straightforward things we can look at there. First up, I loved hearing about your experience. That was actually very interesting and a sadly not completely unique. Um, One of the things we used to do quite a lot of the time, actually, when we'd be talking to large groups of people like superintendents, would be to have them share a story about their relationship with math. And it almost sounds like a therapy session, right? It's like, share (laughs) your relationship with math. And you actually probably wouldn't be surprised by the number of people in education who had and and often still have a really bad relationship with math because of the way it's been taught and it's been taught as this sort of you know really process driven Mm -hmm. getting the right answer this is a skill this is just a thing you have to learn Um, and it's been taught like that for a long time now one of the reasons for that is not that long ago it actually made a whole lot of sense to actually teach it like that. So, for example, one of the things I talk about quite a lot is, you know, within my lifetime, just, I was actually born in 1969, so we landed on the moon. And Mm -hmm. as part of getting to the moon, you may well be familiar with the movie Hidden Figures, for example, Mm -hmm. um, we had rooms full of human computers, basically, who you know, did a ton of the calculations, but not just NASA, but banks, insurance companies. My mom was a, was a secretary, and I guess office manager would be today's sort of description of the job. But she used a ton 
of just mathematical procedures in her job to calculate like supplies and costs and all that kind of stuff. So there was a need not that long ago for people to just be good at doing mathematical procedures. Like it was a valid outcome from the school experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. But of course, today, there is not one person in the world, well, maybe maybe in the world, but certainly not in the US, who is paid to purely be good at doing mathematical procedures. That's just not mm-hmm. a thing that we need to be good at. And yet our sort of teaching philosophy has struggled to sort of sh- make that shift, right? So even though um, the need was for a few people to come out of school understanding the math, but for most people to just come out being able to do it, that was a valid need. That mm-hmm. is just no longer has any relevance. Basically today, it's all about the understanding, the problem solving, which if it's taught right, is fun. I mean, this mm-hmm. this is where the fascination lies. This is where the excitement lies. Um, and it's sad that for so many people, like, it's interesting hearing you talk about statistics being that moment where it kind of finally made sense to you because you saw the relevance. Well, if math is taught in a way that sort of is relevant, not because it's relevant in some sort of bogus real world sense, but the fact that it's fun, that it's interesting, that it's engaging, um, then that relevance can begin at kindergarten and move on up. So there, there are ways of making that shift. But unfortunately, I guess to go back to your question, which I diverged from a little while ago, <laughs> if you're preparing and you're sort of going, okay, this is the list of standards that I need to hit. This is the set of skills kids need to come out of. And if you're thinking about math as this sort of set of skills that kids need to do, while you may be hitting some check boxes, you're not really teaching a subject. You know what I mean? It's it's basically, yeah. um, it's like teaching in the English language as a sort of, you know, set of sort of, I don't know what the word would be, but like a, like, a set of little sort of rules yeah. without ever reading a book. Uh, and reading a book or, or enjoying <laughs> language is the fun part of the experience without which the rest of it kind of doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, you know, several things you said resonated with me. First of all, we we share being born in 1969, so there's one <laughs> thing there. But you know, I remember distinctly in fifth grade. Um, you know, one of the projects that we did for an entire quarter was learning the multiplication tables in a, um, you know, in the grid paper. Uh, you know, literally memorizing them, and and it was all computational. Um, and, you know, thinking about the neuroscience of, of, you know, how people learn through information processing, it strikes me in retrospect that I spent so much time trying to remember the individual numbers and the digits and mm. then trying to process them. I didn't have any working memory left to actually understand what it was that I was learning from, you know, a practical standpoint. Is that a fair uh, recollection on my part? Absolutely. Very much so. So this, I mean, working memory is a very limited um, thing that we have. Most people can remember, you know, six or seven mm-hmm. concurrent things. Their working memory is almost like has a, several slots available to hold some information. And once they're filled, stuff starts getting pushed out. So this is a, a fairly typical problem here, where if you're trying to solve some bigger calculation, and you end up getting stuck in the nitty gritty little bits, and you, you it's very easy to lose sight of the bigger picture of what you're doing because you've got to kind of try and remember everything. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, that's a that's certainly 
one aspect of the challenge that um, if you're purely using working memory to do mathematics, you're really going to struggle because we don't have a whole lot of that. And it's it's really what it comes down to is building schema. We need yep. to build neural networks, if you like, schema, sort of big conceptual understandings. Um, because when you can activate those and bring those to bear on problem solving, that's when you can really start to bring interesting ideas sort of in a way that can, you know, different ideas can converge to solve problems. And that's what gives you the scope of being able to look at something, not get too hung up in the tiny trivial calculations, but actually start seeing what it is you're yeah. doing in a bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so focusing in on, on this concept of schema and, and how, how information gets encoded into long-term memory with respect to math. So in several of your talks, you know, you mentioned concepts that the the words are, will sound familiar, the linear equation, the cubic, the quadratic equations. Um, if you were thinking about what you would hope that a learner's uh, schema and neural connections would look like with respect to that, if, if it's taught well, how would that look different than than them just understanding the computational aspects of it? Does that right. question make, resonate with you? Absolutely. In fact, that's a really great place to start. And I think linear equations, let's just focus on that one because that's a really good, simple place to start. Like most people will be familiar, for example, with solving. I'm sure we, many people have had the experience of solving <laughs> yeah, a yeah. very straightforward linear equation, like, you know, <laughs> say 2x plus 1 equals 5, right? What is x? And you go, mm -hmm. okay, we subtract 1, so we move that over to the other side, so we've got 2x equals 4, now we divide both sides by 2, so x equals 2, great, so we found x. Um, but, of course, 2x plus 1 equals 5 is also something that, if you have 2x plus 1 equals y, can be graphed. The 2 that's in front of the x is actually the slope of the graph, mm -hmm. which, if you're thinking in the context of like a hill that you're walking up, slope is how steep it is. The 1 is sort of the intercept of the graph, which would be where, you know, if you've got some notional sort of origins and axes um, is where that's going to hit that. You, you want a student to not only have sort of ideally a really strong visualization of, okay, 2x plus 1, not just how do I move some numbers around to find x, but what does that mean? What are all the different contexts that 2x plus 1 could exist in? Mm -hmm. um, where they and then with slope for example again it's not just a question of oh slope is rise over run this thing i've memorized this term it's like no i understand what that means i know what that looks like i know if the slope is changing um i know as that number increases the slope is going to get steeper as it decreases it's getting shallower that type of thing you want the students to have this whole sort of connected set of ideas um that move out from this, in this case, it's like one. once one thing gets activated, like mm -hmm. O2x plus 1, you want all these ideas to kind of, you know, expand away from that. And that occurs when a student has learned mathematics in this sort of connected way, where all these sort of, they're, they're problem solving in a way where they're used to the idea of, okay, the problem asks about this, but to actually figure out what you're doing, you might have to call upon all different connected ideas, bring those to bear and solve a problem, as opposed to just going, okay, 2x plus 1 equals 5, I move the 1, I divide by 2, great, I end up with x equals 2. Like, 
sure, being able to do that calculation, that's fine. But that's, you know, mathematics is really being able to use these things in a much, much wider context. And our brain naturally wants to learn things as schema. It wants to make connections Mm -hmm. between things. So enabling students to learn mathematics in that connected way is actually just matching the way our brain naturally learns things. It, it, our brain does a terrible job when it tries to learn things in isolation, right? When it tries to learn things as a list, we really struggle. Our natural sort of mechanisms revolve around building these connected webs. Um, that's why actually we find things funny. I can talk another time about humor, but the reason <laughs> that we find things funny mm-hmm. is that a joke will activate a schema or a branch of a schema. So, for example, a joke like, um, why do we go to the mall? Um, which was actually told to me by, by my 10-year-old son. And the answer is, why go to one store when you can go to the mall, right? <laughs> so just groan for a minute. But, but what's happened there is the mall has activated a schema or a branch of schema in your mind, this whole connected idea of the mall. Mm-hmm. And then them all sort of suddenly shifts that schema. And for some reason, we find that funny. But it illustrates the fact that our brains love making connected webs. That's what we do. That's how they work, right? So if we learn math in a way that's really connected like that, not only is it more useful for problem solving, it also actually just matches the way we we do things whereas learning things in these sort of isolated little rigid sort of skill sets is is mm-hmm. very unnatural for us and that's one of the reasons why then math gets this bad rap if you like as being frustrating boring meaningless and and so forth and so on let me let me probe um just a, a little bit further on this because i i really do find this fascinating so when i teach um freshman level statistics Obviously, the linear equation plays a huge role in that because you want to get to learning what correlations are, et cetera. And so what I've observed is that, and and I'm teaching communication students. So Nigel, by definition, they are math phobic. They hate math. That's why they're in communication, (laughs) right? So, so, So there's a predisposition there in the first place. But I find that they walk into that classroom with a lot of natural heuristics. So they may Mm. not call it the linear equation, but they know that there are certain relationships where more is better is the way that they might phrase it. And so when I probe on that, for example, they will say, okay, well, if I'm, you know, trying to make friends with someone, more communication is going to make it easier for me to develop, you know, uh, friendships and, and that sort of thing. And so they have heuristics, um, and then when you start probing on that, they say, okay, well, there could be a point of diminishing return where if I became become stalker-like, then maybe I'm not going to be quite <laughs> as good of a friend. And then you start to talk about the bend in that curve so it's no longer linear and you get into other equations, et cetera. So with that context in mind, I, I agree with you that people's brains are wired to learn about connections. How do you think that the knowledge of the math behind it changes the way that those heuristics go from being um, personal rules of thumb to something that is is maybe more precise. I don't know if that's the right term, but there's something better, I think, if you learn the math behind it. How would you explain that? Yeah, I love that example. I mean, that's fantastic. And I mean, there, for example, what you've got is you've obviously got a positive correlation for a bit, mm-hmm. right, which eventually then turns negative. Um, and so... But I like, and and you're absolutely correct, that the students 
they can, you know, they can, they understand some schema connected with that. They have mm-hmm. some sort of natural heuristics. They have some natural understanding of like, oh yeah, I see what that means. Yeah. I mean, and the mathematics then is just going to give you more accurate tools to be able to describe those situations. Or for example, the other thing is that particular situation of, oh, something's got a positive slope, positive slope, mm, diminishing, diminishing, and now, oh my gosh, once we pass a certain <laughs> threshold, actually becomes negative. Well, that isn't, of course, only going to occur in that situation. I'm sure there are plenty mm-hmm. of other, not just in personal interaction situations, but in physics, in all sorts, you know. So right. what we mathematically is, once you can analyze that, put some numbers or graph it or visualize it, then, of course, you'll be able to recognize, oh, this is the same as this situation, which, of course, on the face of it, may have nothing to do with personal interactions, but might be something to do with, I don't know, flying too close to the sun or something, but whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. some I, I can't think off the top of my head of some situation to be the same. But I think the mathematics then gives you that ability to spot those connections between otherwise disparate contexts and go, wow, when we look at this mathematically, it's almost like we're taking the the pure abstract essence of the situation, which effectively is the mathematics of it, right? And now you you realize and you see, oh, that same situation apply, you know, the same mathematical essence applies here, 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 which is why mathematics is described in this, um, you know, sort of universal language, right? So, mm-hmm. the, you know, mathematics is not described in terms of those personal, that particular context. Um, it can be described purely in sort of, X's and Y's and numbers and graphs, which could then be applied to any context. But what the math does is it gives you that ability to not remain stuck in sort of like, well, I think this is kind of what it's doing. I wonder if it is. Math gives you that ability to go, okay, let me go deeper here and actually figure out with great certainty mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. what is happening. Um, but then also to be able to realize that, wow, these, you know, these same descriptors apply to all kinds of different situations. And that's why it's such a beautiful and powerful subject. Yeah. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of um, your past experiences. So you started out um, af- after uh, your, your time in music, you, you became a teacher in the LA public school system teaching math. And you tell a story in several of your talks about how uh, a chocolate bar became a very important teaching tool for you. Can you, can you talk through that a little bit? <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah, I did. I taught in LA for, for a while, actually. And I, I loved every minute of it. It wasn't always easy. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely my first semester in the classroom was tough. Um, that, you know, it's always that kind of, Hey, here's a new guy. Let's give him five classes of algebra one, a one out of kids <laughs> that have been in high school, and never passed a math class. So it was that, you know, baptism of fire, but you sink or swim. And I, I really enjoyed it and I loved it. And I think much the same as you were describing, you know, that y- you didn't feel connected to mathematics in any way. I was searching, especially early on in the first sort of semester, first year or so of what I was teaching, I was searching for a way to connect to the students and for them, not so much me personally, but also for them to connect to the mathematics. And just found that, you know, obviously chocolate bars come in different shapes and sizes and there are some that are triangular and there are some that are circular and when you're then studying geometry which we were at the time um there are ways of looking at sort of the chocolate bars then that maybe again 
speak to this deeper, more universal sort of way of describing it. Does this chocolate bar that might look bigger on the outside, does it in fact have more chocolate than this other one? So for example, when something's triangular, it actually has the biggest sides, if you like, but actually has the least amount of volume, whereas something that's circular might look sort of on the face of it smaller, but actually has more chocolate on the inside. So mm -hmm. it was a way of kind of doing what we've been talking about of getting the kids to realize that math isn't this sort of abstract set of rules that you memorize for no reason, but that it actually allows you to think about these sort of interesting situations that are right in front of you and then to quantify them. So doing kind of what you're talking about where you might have some natural heuristic or some idea about something, but then the math allows you to really take that to another level and go, well, is this more? kind of feels like more or is my intuition being sort of played in the wrong way by chocolate manufacturers which um mm -hmm. it's probably like i did say in some of those talks probably not the intention whatsoever <laughs> a lot of the times <laughs> chocolate bars are probably shaped that way purely because they're int interesting to look at but mm -hmm. it was definitely one aspect and one way that i found of just kind of being able to sort of get the students to sort of appreciate that math was just more than rules and that was a big first step right that that was uh there were many steps after that but that was certainly one of the the big first ones and it helped them to just begin to connect to that idea that oh mathematics is is interesting it can actually do things that i couldn't otherwise do yeah, I, I in, in just a moment I want to turn to the work that you're currently doing with the the Mind Research Institute. But before we do that, there's a couple other examples I'd like for you to talk through because I because I think one of the things that parents I mean we have a lot of parents that listen to the podcast, also a of lot course, of teachers, yeah. obviously, and I think sometimes people are just yearning for thinking about what are some other applications of math that I can present to my learner uh, that they that might resonate with them. So. You you have obviously um, a great deal of experience in the in the world of music as a as a rock guitarist. How would you talk about the relationship between math and music? All right, fabulous question. So <laughs> there is so much to this. Uh, I could talk about this probably for hours, but I try and restrain myself a little bit here. So there are obviously some very simple, straightforward connections that people think of when they start thinking about rhythms and, mm -hmm. you know, okay, there are bars, bars are subdivided into beats and so forth and so on. And, you know, you can have quavers, semi-quavers, and I know my terminology being British is sometimes a little different. So I think here, you know, half notes, quarter notes, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So there's all of those sort of rhythmical um sort of associations which are great and you know can be used when kids are starting to learn about fractions for example they certainly mm -hmm. sort of there's those types of connections which and the other nice thing there is that for example if you're getting kids to clap out patterns well effectively they're clapping out these kind of proportional relationships like right. you know three beats per two or if you're going to get really funky right that type of thing or four <laughs> to one and all those types of things so that's nice because you're effectively doing some physical ideation as in using your body to create some to basically illustrate an idea so that that's 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 cool but for me the much bigger connection between math and music which really then leads into the work of mind research institute because a lot of the early work of mind um, was very wrapped up in this question mind actually stands for music intelligence 
mm. neural development. So music was a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. And the work there is really looking at what we call spatial temporal reasoning. And there's actually a lot of research showing that especially kids who've started to play music at a young age, actually playing music develops your spatial reasoning abilities. Um, and so I played violin myself from the age of five. And certainly, I don't think it did my mathematical um, sort of abilities, if you like, any harm to have those two things going on at the same time. So mm -hmm. for me, that the bigger connection between math and music is beyond just the sort of the numbers and the beats and so forth, which are, which are all totally true. And you've obviously got the pitches and the fact you've got a beautiful exponential relationship um, as something as a tone goes up an octave, it actually doubles in frequency. So you get this lovely mm -hmm. exponential relationship there, which is really, really cool. But the bigger thing is that there's a real spatial reasoning. Like, so for example, when I think of notes, and I actually do a lot of songwriting as well, and when I sort of listen mm -hmm. to music in my mind and sort of write stuff, I actually visualize it in some way, shape, or form. It's difficult to describe, but there's definitely a spatial visualization component to the way that I think about music and almost feel it. And it's, it's the, you know, and that's very similar to then sort of the way that one might think about mathematics. So it's that connection that I think is the bigger and deeper one and a really good reason to have kids play instruments. There's, there's no doubt that it, it builds that spatial reasoning, which has so many um, applications. So, so I don't know if that helped a whole lot with no, it, activities it kids and, can and do. I, <laughs> and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but, but like I'm trying to think through what you just said. So like we know that in... Um, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of songs, CG and, and, and D forms a basis for, you know, the progression. And then you have blues riffs that, that uses a completely different progression. Is that what you're talking about in terms of like learning spatial differences, like the difference in those notes and the progressions? To a degree. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, I mean, a piece of it. So, I mean, the, the sort of the classic one, four, five progressions, mm -hmm. so actually be C, F and G, um, is certainly sort of a, you know, a well-used set of chords. I'm sure the beat, you could probably play a lot of Beatles songs if you yeah, just see yeah. F and G, right? You get right, right. a good many of them. Um, and yes, it's almost like you've got this tonal set of C and you're in C and you can feel that you're in C and you can almost visualize all the different places that you can go to. I can go to F, I can go to G, these are the notes I'm going to go to. But then blues, yes, absolutely. You're going to bend that F and you're going to go somewhere in between mm -hmm. F and F sharp and you're going to do this sort of weird, funky thing. And yes, that that it's like a color that's totally different. So there's definitely some piece of that. I think it's more that there's a visualization, if you like, of the whole structure. It's almost like a piano keyboard laid out in your mind of like, sure. oh, these are all yeah. the notes. This is where they are. And then, yes, what blues does is it kind of pushes into the spaces in between, which is really nice. Um, and you hear singers as well that you get some people who just have beautiful voices. Not only do they sing in sort of with great pitch, but it's when they actually just push that pitch slightly out on certain notes with great intention mm. that can be some mm -hmm. of the most magical moments ever. So anyway, but uh, it, it's not often that I get to uh, interview a, a neuroscience person that also is an accomplished musician. So, <laughs> so, so forgive me for that little foray. Um, so, so let's turn to the Mind Research Institute and let's start with 
uh, Gigi the Penguin. Can you tell the story behind that and and how that sort of then gives us an, an entrance into understanding what the Mind Research Institute is doing? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. So, all right. So Gigi is very cute. Gigi is a penguin. Kids, I mean, basically that the primary thing, I mean, we do many things with mind research. There are a lot of different sort of areas of research and development around education, but ST math, the program spatial temporal math with Gigi is the sort of one of the big ones. And the, the critical thing here is that we need to find a way if you like, with minimal and ideally zero instructions and zero language up front. We'll add language later, but we want to be able to take visual models of mathematics and get kids to get hands-on and problem-solve with those visual models. And by problem-solving in this visual space, they build the mathematical schema that we need. So ultimately, these games with Gigi, and we'll get to Gigi's role in a minute, these games become a way of students building their schema through problem solving. And then the challenge becomes, A, how do you make that engaging for kids? And B, how do you put something in front of a student where they kind of always know, sort of, kind of, what they have to do? Mm -hmm. And in comes Gigi. So Gigi is a penguin. Gigi is very cute. And Gigi wants to get to the other side of the screen. Always. So that means whatever is on the screen, whatever weird model, whatever thing that the kids have to play with, whatever they have to poke at, they know they got to get Gigi across the screen. So it's almost like a metaphor for, you know, <laughs> here's what you always need to do is like, oh, I have to make sure these blocks go into this hole so Gigi can cross, or I need to get this ramp to the same height as this other thing so Gigi can cross, you know, whatever it might be. It means we can put anything on the screen, but kids then have a sort of a big picture understanding, if you like, of, oh, I got to get Gigi across. And the, the funny thing here is, initially, and then this grew out of neuroscience research at UCI, um, and really Gigi kind of came into existence in the late 90s, about 97, 98. And initially, Gigi was one of several different characters. Um, there was Kiki the kangaroo, and there were a few <laughs> others. But the kids would say things like, well, why doesn't the kangaroo just jump over the hole? And <laughs> and and it was like, yeah, actually, that's a good point. The kangaroos jump. So no student has ever, well, maybe, but I've never, ever heard it. No student has ever questioned the fact that Gigi can't do anything, right? Basically, mm -hmm. they never go, why doesn't Gigi jump or why doesn't Gigi fly? Because it's like, penguins don't fly. So <laughs> you have to figure out how to help Gigi across the screen. So for some reason, ever since it's been a penguin, um, that's it. Kids are like, yep. I, I totally believe in this narrative that I that I have mm -hmm. to work within that I got to get Gigi across the screen. So, and now of course we have Gigi. Gigi visits schools. I mean, it's a big deal. I was at the very the very first time Gigi visited a school. It was in LA. I forget what school it was. It was an elementary school, and there were about a thousand kids there. And um, Gigi showed up, and the noise was unbelievable. I, I remember being on stage somewhere actually in the UK at a festival 
and um, I think the Spice Girls were, were sort of showing up. <laughs> and it was a similar level of screaming <laughs> that was occurring <laughs> when Gigi showed up at this school. Uh, so, yeah, it's a big deal when Gigi comes to a school. And the kids, you know, it, it's it's wonderful and beautiful to see. One of the hardest things about the pandemic was the fact that for quite a while there, I wasn't able to visit schools and wasn't able mm-hmm. to go into classrooms and see kids engaging with this and, and figuring stuff out. I really missed that a lot, actually. So through the so through the platform that um, students would use with Gigi to solve problems, I assume that that you also work with, uh, you know, problems that would be for older students. Um, are there different characters that they would engage in, or or how do you how do you use spatial temporal math pedagogy um, as you move up in the uh, complexity of what it is that you're trying to teach? Yeah, great question. So what we actually, believe it or not, use GG all the way through eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So even in quadratic equations, there's a whole um, there's a whole factoring quadratics unit, and there's a whole unit of called parabola balloons, and um, where students are graphing quadratic equations. And there you'll find that um, you know GG still crosses the screen. But for example, there's just a lot of other stuff on the screen that kids and by this point they kind of get what they've got to do. And mm-hmm. it's almost like as a gut check, something will go down, fill a path, and then Gigi kind of walks on and walks across the screen as like a, okay, I get it. But it's not so, Gigi's a bit less in your face, if that makes sense, right? So we still use the same metaphor um, because it works very well. And, and certainly, you know, but very often Gigi won't actually even be on the screen when kids are starting to look at a problem. They just implicitly understand that at some point, once they figure out what's happening, Gigi will cross at the bottom and, and or whatever it is. But the, the, the mathematics is just different. The problems that they're solving are different. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the thinking that they're going to have to do is going to utilize um, different things. And we do have various other characters that make sort of appearances in games at different times. But Gigi is always the, the final check, if you like, that, that will cross the screen at the right. end. But so even in higher grade levels. Um. So that you referred to this a little bit earlier, but I want to kind of go full circle with it. You talked about, you know, problem solving as being one of the outcomes that you hope happens. And, and I noticed in some of the literature from the mind uh, Institute that you use the phrase um, perception action cycle. Um, can you explain what that is and, and how that would maybe be important for learners to be able to learn the mathematical concepts and then apply that in problem solving uh, situations that would involve novel examples that maybe wasn't directly taught to them. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I think the, there are a couple of really big ideas here that are very much takeaways um, regardless of, of even what, what you're learning. And one of those big ideas is that our brain has got a really, really good learning mechanism built into it, right? It, like, it's actually extremely good. And in fact, all mammals have this same mechanism built as a sort of structure into the way that we learn, even seventh grade students, as I often <laughs> say in my <laughs> when I'm talking to people. But but they do. And, and this... You know, this effectively, we have a mechanism which, yes, the perception action cycle is is kind of a more technical 
sort of way of thinking or looking at it. But really what it, and we can, we'll talk about it a bit, but what it means is we learn by trying things out. We learn by doing, we learn by testing something, seeing what happens and go, oh, that worked great. Or "Mm, that didn't work. Let me try something again. And it's that Mm -hmm. cycle, that repeated action of trying, doing, testing. We've had this as a learning mechanism in our brains for thousands and thousands of years. Um, this is also how rats figure out their way out how to get out of mazes, for example. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's you know a well-built mechanism, but it really does involve around the learner being at the center of the action, right? This is not a passive tool. We have this really amazing tool in our heads that is built for active learning, and, and the perception action cycle is sort of the neuroscience way of looking at it, and it, it literally is you perceive something if, you, if you're faced with a problem you see it you your brain will immediately fire up schema to try and solve it it'll say oh let me try and figure out what to do one of those schema will win and they will cause you to make a prediction about what you think you have to do you will test that out and if it works then a little bit in your brain in the hippocampus basically holds that schema it knows what you thought was going to happen and if that actually happens it basically sends out a chemical that makes that schema even stronger so it basically says wow that thing worked i'm going to make that even bigger and better so that when i run into the similar problem in the future it's even more likely that that's going to be my response but of course the opposite happens in your brain you've got this little feedback loop in the hippocampus and if something doesn't work that sends out a very different signal and now sort of makes that idea smaller, if you like. It says, oh, mm-hmm. not so good. Let's not do that anymore. So we've got this phenomenal learning mechanism. And I guess the the thing that we do with Gigi is we put students at the center of that active learning cycle again and again and again, thousands of times through a grade level, they will problem solve. Mm-hmm. And it's through that repeated action of the learner being at the center of that that action that basically builds their schema, builds their understanding, and builds their learning. The problem with the traditional way that we especially do things in mathematics class is that the learner is generally passive, right? The idea is that Mm -hmm. the information is given to you. Like the teacher will say, well, here's how you do it. Now go and practice it a few times. And there's no struggle. And without that struggle, there's really not going to be a whole depth of learning. So the idea of being at the center of the action being the one who is doing the struggling, that now means the learning is so much more effective and deep and really matches the mechanisms that we have. So hopefully that made some sense and was relatively clear, but that's basically the gist of what we're trying to do here is provide that active learning space um, because it just we're, we're just kind of wired to learn like that. So it just makes yeah. a lot of sense to utilize that, right? Well, and, and, and to that point, I mean, uh, you know, if, if a student is an athlete, if a student is a musician, if a student is an artist, they go through that, uh, that, that productive struggle over Absolutely. and over again in those other areas, right? That's how they get better. 
that that's I mean that is exactly right. So it's almost like at all the things that is exactly those things you're talking about, being an athlete, musician, anything. Yes, when you practice music, you can hear the output, right? You hear yeah. the feedback from what you're doing, and you go, "Oh no, that was a bit flat," or "No, that wasn't right." Damn, I'm going to do it again, and you go around and you practice again, and and same thing with with playing sport. You're like, "Ah, I kicked it this time, and it just went too much to the right." Okay, let me try it again, mm-hmm. and you just you are the center of the action. And you basically engage in, as you say, this productive struggle, this problem-solving process of, of iterating again and again. And we're just, we're wired to learn like that. And we see it happening almost everywhere else. Yeah. But for some reason in the math classroom, we go, no, here's how we're <laughs> going to do it. I'm going to tell you what to do, so don't struggle. And we always try and minimize the student yeah. struggle. And I know it's hard for parents. I totally understand. I have a 11-year-old and an um, 8-year-old. And, you know, I, watching your kids struggle is difficult, but I've gotten past that. And it, the value, and when you hear kids have that moment, right, you know that moment, when you hear them going, ah, got it, and you know that that's at the end of some period of frustration, whenever that happens, that means whatever it was they just figured out, they got it. Like it's done, right? It's, it's in right. there and it's strong. You know what I mean? Like it's something that they really own. Yeah. And that's yeah. so different. So much of our sort of math teaching methodology is around this idea. Let's minimize the struggle. Let's tell everybody how to do it. And there are a lot of issues with that. The, not the least of which is that the learner becomes very passive, but there's also a huge issue here of, of what we call deceptive clarity, which is where if somebody is telling you something or like you're watching a video of someone who's showing you how to do something while you're watching the video, you, your brain will literally be going, Oh, I got this. I understand. Yeah. I totally mm-hmm. understand what this person's talking about. But of course, when the video stops <laughs> and you go try to do this thing, you don't understand it because you never actually had to fire up those schema for yourself in the first place. They were being fired by the person who was making the video that was kind of causing your brain to fire these things up. So there's just a lot of issues with this idea of like, oh, we just put the information in front of somebody and that's <laughs> going to be the learning process. YouTube makes everybody a rock star, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, and again, and again there are, of course... If, as a student, you are sort of motivated enough and you know what it is you're trying to figure out, well, then YouTube yeah. videos are unbelievably useful, right? Because now you're activating your schema, you're the active learner, and you're searching out materials to help you figure something out. Beautiful. Unbelievably incredible resource. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, again, notice the student has moved from being the active participant but unfortunately, most of them in the classroom, they're very much the passive participant. Yeah. And it's that shift that's that's really the key, is, is when students are actively engaged, it's just such a different story, basically. Nigel, it's been wonderful speaking with you. It's been a very engaging and fun conversation, and I appreciate all of the uh, great information that you've given us. And, and I hope that you know, you've caused us to be active learners in consuming it. Well, there you go. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure to um, talk to you today and dive into this topic. And as you can tell, there's there's a lot of it. So um, yeah, people found it found it interesting and stimulating. Absolutely. My guest today was Nigel Nisbet. He's the vice president of content creation at the Mind Research Institute. In the text accompanying this podcast, you can learn more about Nigel as well as the institute 
by following either of the hyperlinks. My name is Scott Titsworth. I'm the host of the podcast. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. He's in the studio taking care of us. If you would like to reach out to the Teaching Matters podcast with ideas or suggestions or questions, please feel free to contact us by email or through our Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you all have a great day. Thank you.